0: So different. I get your luck. I like the sound of the shredder makes. Let's feed it more. Medical paperwork. Man, it really was worth putting googly eyes in my shredder. This is a lot more fun. Meanwhile, Megan is like, "What medical document do I have to refer to?" And it's binder one, two, third binder from the left. Open it up. Follow the tabs. It should be about three sheets. It. There it is. welcome to another episode of my favorite feminist my name is megan and i'm here with my co-host milana
1: hey guys you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences today specifically is the last episode of season two we're taking a break for the holidays. I personally am cramming for the last month for my GRE. Megan is just cramming all of the art in her kiln. We needed this time to decompress. So thanks in advance for being patient and loving and listening. Thank fuck we can
0: open this episode and be like, we dodged a Cheeto colored bullet. We really did. <laughs> we were so stressed out last episode.
1: We won. I and mean, then, like, even the week after
0: Election Day, like that was some not fun stuff. That was, oh, that was a rough week. We won. And we're, we're still not officially uh, through it yet. That but I good. just was like, I feel so good that we can start the last episode of the season and be like, oh my god, guys, I don't actually have to go to grad school in Canada. <laughs> I can
1: I can stay here and go to grad oh, school. Oh no, I, I,
0: bitch! I don't have <laughs> money for grad school, but. Yeah, no, grad school, that would have been my get-out-of-the-country card. I just want to share that we are collectively having a sigh of relief, and you guys might too. We We made it, it, guys. We did it. We're here. There's still work to be done. There is. But at least it's not like, (laughs) fucking, let's get the babies out of cages kind of work.
1: Oh, God. I hate people. I hate people Uh, I hope
0: the person (laughs) that you're covering this episode that you don't hate... I'm not I don't think so. Okay, not a
1: committal answer. No. Okay. Yeah.
0: So what do you what do you have in store for us today?
1: I have a decorated doctor in the British army in the late 1700s, actually no, just in in the
0: 1800s, the first half of it. <gasps> do they end up serving down in South America and then in the Caribbean? Not in South America. Sorry, sorry, South Africa and then then in
1: the Caribbean. Yes, I know who you're doing. Okay, this will be fun. <laughs> yeah, no, um, this person is a whole like there's a lot going on with this person. We're, uh. we're gonna
0: have Caribbean islands, and I think there's probably pirates involved. And I've got pottery. <laughs> that's that's
1: I, I know. That's why when you were telling me about yours, I was like, oh no, did I no, go too far? No. You know what? I have award-winning pottery today. I mean, that's awesome. The Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa of pottery?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. All right. Go ahead and tell me about your, like, swashbuckling story of pirates and Caribbean islands and... No,
1: no pirates. You're just assuming pirates. We're a little wishful thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It makes it just a little less crazy.
0: All right, you know what? I'm going to be a bastard and I'm going first. So, yeah. Do it. Doing it. You can't stop me. You could, but I'm doing the editing this time around. So, dry me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is pretty fitting because fucking 2020 has been a little rough for everyone, and I'm being selfish and I'm doing a extra Megany segment today. Do it. It's our last episode of the season. We will be back Season 3, January 2021. But, it, you guys are going to have to put up with a ceramic China painting artist. And not just me this time. <laughs> no, today I am covering late 19th, early 20th century ceramic artist and my creative kin, Adelaide alsop Robino. Yes. Ooh. Only considered one of the top American ceramic artists of the era.
1: Is that Adelaide, like A-D-E-L-A-I-D-E? Yes. Okay, now I have a song stuck in my head with that as the title, but keep going. I'm old. I don't know what song you're referring to. Okay, PJ Harvey? Oh, sorry. What? Okay, little little,
0: little side note. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get on the whole Instagram, like, reels kind of thing, right? And, you know, it's cool if you add music. I'm like, yeah, I can be cool. I can add music. Wow, I don't know any of this music. Nope. No. I don't know any yeah. of that. Nope.
1: Old. Oh, I'm like, I'm not even officially 30 yet. Sorry, it wasn't PJ it was Meg Myers. Those are two totally different artists and several decades in between them. I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: Yes. Don't know. Any music these days makes me feel old.
1: (laughs) You just gotta you gotta keep
0: up with it. You gotta
1: every once in a while just turn the radio on and let your ears bleed. (laughs) All right.
0: Now for someone considered a leading artist and craftswoman of her day. Honestly, there's there's not too much biographical information out there on her. Okay, I was kind of surprised by. Now, I mean, overall, we do know that Adelaide was born into a middle class Connecticut family in 1865 ish. For the most part, from the handful of sources I had, they're all kind of on the same page with dates, but there's a little bit of fudging, so I kind of take these things with a grain of salt. Like, you know, give or take maybe like three
1: or four years. Okay, yeah, that's about that's about the same with. I just I solidified years on my story, but like yeah, everything's a little fuzzy. So I get it. Yeah, a little a little off.
0: Now this, the year that she was born, eighteen sixty-five, which does seem pretty concrete. Um, you know, that's the year that the Civil War ended here in the states. And currently, we haven't kicked off on a Civil War point too, so that's been good. No, no, yeah, we totally just yeah, like we were afraid of that with the election. Passed that by, like legitimately. <laughs> um. Now, details on her growing up there, light. So at some point, her family sent her to a boarding school out in the Midwest, and there she apparently received a solid art education. I don't know what state. I don't know a boarding school. That's fair. Now, like, everyone I've covered, yeah, everyone, she was creative as a kid. And it was pretty cool because at the boarding school, they, like, saw that and actually encouraged her. It was pretty solid because sometimes we've had families and school systems that have not done so. Who, who didn't do that. Yeah.
1: At all. They'd be like, no, you're not doing this thing. And then they're like, no, nah, bitch, I'm doing this thing. Yeah.
0: Well, she did her thing. Yeah. So after she graduated, details again, a little murky. One account said that she stayed on to teach at the boarding school, like sending money back to her family at some point. She moved to Chicago. Okay. And Chicago in the late 1800s, it was actually, like, pretty popping. Yeah. Yeah. So in Chicago, you know, the Industrial Revolution, that's been going on for a while. Notable for that time, there was a lot of architecture and building happening. Like, Frank Lloyd Wright was kind of really kind of getting settled into things. Okay. So that in part makes Chicago in the late 1880s, 1890s a bit of a golden age. And kind of funny enough, so early in the season, we covered another Adelaide, Adelaide Johnson. Mm the sculptor of the suffrage movement, Mm -hmm. and she hit up Chicago too, but most likely a few years before our Adelaide.
1: Okay, so these Adelaides didn't cross paths.
0: Well, maybe. I don't know. Every now and again, we have these episodes where, like, technically they could have intersected with other people that we've covered, which I think is kind of cool.
1: They had to have seen each other at a party.
0: Now, I don't know the details of Adelaide, like, moving in most likely her 20s up to Chicago. And then later she did move to New York City for work. But that in and of itself in the late 1800s is a little unusual. How so? Like, we're we're still in the stuffy Victorian era here in America. Like, after the Civil War, the economy was pretty solid. So we have a much larger middle class. And that put well-off women in a position of essentially being completely dependent on their husbands. Yeah, middle- and upper-class women, they were very much expected to marry, have a family, and keep a proper home. Yeah, it's, it's this period where we get the overall attitude that a woman's place is in the home. That's, that's just, that is my worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah, it's gross. Yeah. So the idea of a single young woman traveling by herself to a big city and then later another one for her to work, Mm -hmm. a little questionable. I don't know if there were family members involved because that just would have been really unusual. But I mean, whatever the circumstances, we know that she moved to these cities to make a living for herself. And Adelaide, she was cashing in on this crazy nationwide trend that everyone wanted a piece of china painting
1: everyone wanted china painting every artist or everyone wanted china painting a lot of the upper and middle class and then even like lower classes too actually that's really fair because my mom used to have a bunch a bunch of china sets and they would just switch out on the regular would you guys like actually use them yeah well, there was one okay. there was one or two, like, ones that we would have all the time. But, like, sometimes, yeah. like, I can't tell you how many China sets my mom had. It was bad. She had a problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so those are the newer kind of commercially produced items. So they're not technically China paints at all. So for this period that I'm talking about, late 1800s, early 1900s, China painting is, like, those really, really nice plates in your grandma's China cabinet that, like, you're only allowed to look at. Maybe if she's in a good mood.
1: Yeah, that's where it started, Grandma.
0: So usually it's flowers painted on, you know, porcelain. And then there might be some gold line work on the edges. Yeah, that's that's China painting. Yeah, that's that's my childhood. And some of it is quite nice. Yeah, yeah but these are like hand-painted items. And for the process, it's when you take a ceramic plate or bowl or like whatever um, after it's been glazed. So after it's already had that first coat of, like, a hard, glossy surface. And then you can paint on top of that with these china paints. And they're basically just, like, the ceramic version of oil paints.
1: Okay. So a bitch to work with.
0: No, not necessarily. Okay. I mean, they can be a bit finicky. One thing that's unique about them is that, for the most part, in the realm of ceramics, when you go to glaze something, often the color of it glazed is not the color when it comes out of the kiln. Right,
1: that's why you do the squares, right, before you do the, the actual painting? Test tiles,
0: yeah, that can help. Yeah. Like often, you know, you might glaze something, it's like an off-white color, and then it comes out of the kiln and it's like bright blue or green or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, that happens all the time. Yeah, I mean, glazes, when you mix them up, they're just kind of muddy looking.
1: I never watched you do any of this. Remember that. Like off-white or,
0: like, maybe, like, a kind of brick color because there's lots of iron in it. Uh, Yeah. For the most part, glazes look absolutely nothing like how they come out of the kiln. Yeah, because you just have that wet, raw material that you've mixed up into a liquid that you paint on your unglazed ceramic work.
1: Why don't I know this? Well, I try not
0: to ceramic geek out on you too hard. You're so sweet. And I didn't even intend to say any of all that stuff. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. I try. I try. I'm not. I'm not into that world. But so China paints are fun because unlike normal glazes, like when you actually apply them to the ceramic piece, mm-hmm. and then you're like, gee, I wonder what this is gonna be. China paints, for the most part, go on similar to how they're gonna come out of the kiln. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So in between that start and finish process, there's a kiln that goes up to like roughly thirteen hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. It might change a little bit. Okay. But it's it's almost like a one to one in how the color is gonna behave.
1: Okay. This is kind of like chemistry.
0: It is. And if I wanted to go super hard on chemistry this episode, I could have. Don't. But I love you. I love me. And I didn't. You know I hate chemistry, though. It's like not. No. Yeah. But there is a good bit of of chemistry behind all of this. Mm -hmm. It's cool that's not my cup of tea. Chemistry is more like, what, ionic bonds? What what does
1: the iron do when it
0: gets hot? I can go green, sometimes pink. Sometimes in a right atmosphere, it can actually go red, and that looks quite nice. That's tricky. Wait, it goes from green to pink? You can get greens. You can get pinks. It all depends on your firing atmosphere and the glaze formulation. Okay, you lost me. Just keep going. Yeah, like if you do a heavy reduction firing in which you're depriving the atmosphere of the kiln of oxygen, that's when you can get a lot of really rich... Yeah, see? See, that's what I'm not doing this episode. You <laughs> just know that reds are tricky, so... I hate I hate chemistry. All I'm right, going. the technique of China painting it has been around for hundreds of years. I mean, we're talking it started in China, obviously, in about the seventh century. It kind of took hold in Europe, you know, in the Western world in about the eighteenth century. Mm-hmm. So you know, we were a little behind a little. Mm-hmm. And for the European China painting, you know, think dinnerware sets with white porcelain and the blue detail line work.
1: Mostly like French. Yes,
0: the French were all about China painting. Yeah, very ornate. And it was the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, which was the first World Fair held in the United States, where the popularity of China paints here in America, like,
1: fucking exploded. Okay. Is that... Okay. Now, the difference between the European China paint and the American China paint is the gold rim? No. Okay, because that would have been my guess because Americans love gold and it's like the Art Deco area era and
0: so Art Deco does have a bit of an influence in style with like line work and stuff. Mm -hmm. If anything, a big difference between like British China painters and American China painters was that the Americans we were much more serious about it.
1: No, no. (laughs) When we're into something, we go hard. Look at football. Yeah. Well, because when
0: I say like it was a national trend, it really was. Yeah. I mean, think about at the start of the quarantine this year, how everyone was getting on their start their sourdough bread. <laughs> I was not. No, thank you. You would have killed it. Don't worry. I killed mine. That's I
1: fine. I killed it. We, we can be honest with who we are. I'm just not a baker. You know who is okay. a baker? My roommate. <laughs> he got drunk one night and made cobbler. That's not a bad problem. No. <laughs> as long as you made it and you
0: remembered to turn off the oven. Uh, yeah, no, it's fine.
1: I checked. <laughs> that's what matters.
0: But, I mean, just like that was a super trendy thing, like, nationally
1: to do, that's how China painting was, which is kind of weird to imagine. That is a, wow. Okay. Now, were they all buying China paint, or were they actually painting the China? Both. It was both. There was no... It was 50-50 yeah. across the board? Well, I can't say 50-50 across the board.
0: Uh-huh. If we ever come up with a time machine, we can go back and check in on these little historical questions. <laughs> All right, so it is. It's hard to imagine just how much of a craze it must have been. But one writer of the time put it quote: "In almost every family in our large cities, one member at least has taken up pottery or porcelain painting." Ah, oh, gotcha. Like suddenly it was like the cool thing to do. So weird. i like, like, oh, like succulents. Well, I'm gonna give me give me a sec because I'll kind of lay out the groundwork for just why it took off in popularity. Okay. So Adelaide, like, she won it on that. And in New York City, she studied for a period under an American impressionistic painter who was later the founder of the Parsons School of Design, which is a really big, really important art school. Um, Norman Rockwell, he went oh, there. Okay. She later studied under ceramic artists at Alfred University, which is about five hours of a drive from New York City, you know, heading west. And, I mean, to this day, it's a small town. But at Alfred, their ceramic program is, like, considered one of the Ivy League programs for ceramics. Damn. Yeah, it is top notch. And right about the time that Adelaide was getting into ceramics, seriously, she happened to study with the very first director of the program, like the guy who helped start it all. That's It's pretty cool because she was, you know, really on that wave yeah. of these, you know, kind of first generation American ceramic like artists. Like learning
1: from from
0: the fathers of or the mothers of. Yeah. And I I don't happen to have the guy's name in front of me, but he is considered the father of American ceramics. Yeah. He came over from England and, you know, kind of helped fill this knowledge gap here in the States. And that was quite common because of that Philadelphia exposition in 1876. Ceramics were like a hot topic. And a lot of people from Europe came over like from France and from England, from these European centers of ceramics to teach it here in the States. Mm. Uh, And so Adelaide, like she, benefited from that so she worked with that very first director and then another artist who also came over from europe and he was all about high fire porcelain and adelaide's time there it gave her the technical foundation to be able to push her work forward like beyond the china painting Mm -hmm. that she started doing to involving herself in every step of the process in terms of actually making a ceramic object herself because like here in the united states like Gender painting was a super gendered industry and art form. So in both like manufacturing and the arts, China painters were just that, like kind of like what you were asking about earlier. Like all they did was actually paint the ceramic object. Mm. Uh, In the commercial industry, China painters, they were like the who's who of skilled workers. Yeah. Oh, okay, That makes sense. Yeah, because it was such a specialized skill. And that was the best position to have at a ceramic manufacturing company. And in the art realm, it was similar. Like, if you're, you know, an amateur or hobbyist, like, you'd order ceramic blanks from European companies and then later American ones, you know, for the objects to China paint on. And one reason China painting took off is because it was really encouraged for this new leisure class of middle and upper class women. Mm. So they didn't have to work. They had servants to take care of the home.
1: Like, what were they going to do? Yeah, exactly. What
0: are they going to do? Like,
1: (laughs) they had nothing to do yeah. yeah, like they weren't even going to raise children. Yeah, they had nannies yeah.
0: for that. You know, they might have gone to school in order to le- legitimately just find a husband. And then they just kind of sit at home, make themselves look pretty and everything. Oh. Else look pretty. Yeah, the domain was, you know, their home. And China painting, it was a way for them to channel any creative impulse that they might have into that hobby, you know, provided an outlet. And it also reinforced domestic expectations
1: of the home. So they were expected to China paint? to an extent that was that was now that was now like an absolutely must do situation as a woman like as a as a wife not must not must do but in certain
0: societal circles you know it was looked favorably upon because i mean part of it is it drives capitalistic need to like buy 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 mm. right and so people were told that especially women you know fill every room in your house with these finely decorated objects that one feed into this notion of creating this you know home like home away from the world where your husband and your children can come home to Mm, gotcha right and you have these beautiful objects to adorn the house for your beautiful family Mm, yeah right on the flip side of that you're you're buying all this shit you have to have money to have a little studio or to rent a Mm -hmm. studio and then at the same time all those objects like they're showing off your social economic status gotcha so there were a lot of people who got into Chinese painting because they they liked it, but also a lot of people who would buy these objects, too, and fill their homes because there was, like, a way of showing off. So, like, encouraging this type of art, it it was kind of subversive. So it, it reinforced an art world hierarchy that, like, men did serious art, like sculpture mm-hmm. and painting. And women painted, like ceramics. They did decorative arts. Decorative art. Oh,
1: yeah. All right. Like china painting or embroidery there, I, i've been i've been scrolling through google images for adelaide Rabino, and there's one which is that's just homemade chicken chicken and dumplings i don't know why that's on here
0: <laughs> and people in the fine art world they were shitty about china painters there was one guy who wrote um, a review about a show that featured a lot of china painted work Uh, And so that, quote, the flower paintings were the best groups of work, and indeed, we should expect lady artists would excel in that branch of art. Oh, fuck off. Right? And he remarked that the weakest piece were, quote, the most ambitious. The most ambitious. You know, paintings that had attempted figure painting or portraiture. Ah, fuck all the way up. I mean, again, it was a way of like, yeah, you guys can do something creative, but like stay in your own lane. That's it. I mean, there was even a woman china painting who wrote that women should not quote make the mistake of undertaking too ambitious flights in the realm of the arts, but confine your efforts to simple decorative painting, which
1: will leave no room for criticism. Right? Because how could a woman stand up against criticism? And I, just, I, I, ooh, my, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> well, like,
0: are we just too fragile? Okay, so, like, from an economic perspective, there is no downside to supporting women in China painting, right? Like, in the United States, there wasn't a pre-existing mm-hmm. market. Uh, by nature, it was considered an amateur feminine art. Bleah. So China painters, yeah, they wouldn't be taking jobs away from men or threatening real artists. I mean, just like that the woman I just quoted. I mean, that's what they're speaking to. It's that that sentiment. But, like, as a whole, like, Americans' women's interest in china painting Mm -hmm. is what's actually pushing the ceramic field forward. Right. Yeah, because you've got all these women, even if they do more as a hobby, they want better china paints. They want better, you know, ceramic objects to paint on. They're going to need kilns. There's a whole specialized market that they were pumping money into. Right. In order to support, like, their interest. Mm -hmm. So, like, Adelaide, she was... like among those women like pushing the field's craftsmanship and quality forward in 1899 adelaide marries a fellow ceramic artist frenchman samuel robineau yeah and at this point she was practically a a spinster like adelaide was 34 (gasps) oh no (laughs) yeah well i mean even up until like the 1950s like this century like You usually were married in your early 20s. That's true. Oh,
1: wait. Yeah, so that's why. How long has she been painting at this point?
0: Again, I don't have, like, hard numbers on it, but I'd wager, like, maybe about 10 or 15 years at this point. Okay. Yeah. And, I mean, by this point, she's already a nationally known China painter. Okay. So she marries this other ceramic artist.
1: Oh, they met at a shared gallery. I have have no idea. I'm putting a romantic spin on this. (laughs) Yeah. No. 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 Not quite. Nice try, though. Okay.
0: She's a married woman. She's in New York City. She's working. She's got a studio established, like her own studio. And things are going well. So by 1905, she's in her 40s. And Adelaide, like, she's selling her work at Tiffany's. Like, Tiffany's New York City headquarters. What? Yeah, like, Tiffany and Co. of stained glass lamps and diamond jewelry.
1: Superstar of ceramics over here.
0: Did you know that – this is a little sidetrack – Tiffany & Co. has a line of work called Their Everyday Items. Why do you know this? Well, uh, I will have you know that for the mortals amongst us, you can go to Tiffany & Co. and buy from them a paperclip. It is oversized. You get just one. It is 18 karat gold, only $1,500. Why? (laughs) It's stupid. It's stupid. It's like stupid American wealth and opulence. Oh my god, I don't understand. You can also get a sterling silver ball of yarn for almost 10 grand. Do you knit? Like, I mean if you made socks, like you're probably gonna need a few like balls of yarn of that. You can't put it through the wash. You know what else I could get for 10 grand? Um, one year of undergraduate education.
1: That's wonderful. Let's do that. Scholarships. Let's do that. I
0: know, I know. So (laughs) let's some stuff stupid ridiculous things
1: that's uh one-fifth of my student loans gone gone goodbye
0: yeah that'd be a good chunk of mine i mean well a chunk <sighs> now i'm sad all right well anyway i don't have money for that or my student loans but for adelaide she's doing good all right and by like the day standards like the work she's doing is very conventional you know things you and know, i might look at and be like ah, oh, yeah that's, that's nice It may be a little boring, but it's nice. Now, Adelaide, she does start a family, and there came a point where her and her husband, they're like, all right, we're going to move out of New York City. We're going to move more central New York to Syracuse. And, you know, by then, they had three children. They had a house and a studio built there, and they just had space to, like, work and to teach. Kind of just take a little bit more of a a quieter pace than being in New York City. Okay. And Adelaide at this point is branching out from the initial China painting that she had learned in the late 1800s. So the same year she married in 1899, Adelaide and her husband and a friend, they started a monthly publication called Ceramic Studio.
1: I feel like I've heard the name of that before. Is it still running? No.
0: So it ran for about 30 years. It was America's First, specialized ceramic magazine. Okay. And they aimed it towards both hobbyists and
1: professionals. Gotcha. So they weren't, like, looking down on the amateurs.
0: They were very open in their content. So it was a lot of new techniques and patterns and, you know, selling studio equipment, like, you know, where you could buy from. So they tried to make it very accessible. And Adelaide, she acted as editor for that. And so I think because of that, it helped keep her in the foreground of the American ceramic scene.
1: Gotcha.
0: Because two apart, she was helping to influence it with her publication. Okay. So on top of, like, co-running that publication, Adelaide was, she was teaching at two colleges, she was raising a family, and developing her own ceramic techniques. Damn. Working woman, doing it all. Well, that attitude is why Good Housekeeping magazine interviewed her in 1910. They featured her in one of their episodes or one of their magazines. Really? Yeah, because they were they heard about her and they were like, what? She's working and she's successful and she has a family? Oh, my goodness.
1: wow, And that was pretty much
0: the tone of the article. Wow. Like, it was kind of weird. And I've got a link to it in our show notes, but... It gushed almost as much about her house and her garden about her actual, like, artwork. Stop. Really? Yeah. I mean, they did a good part. So they open up and she's in her studio and they talk about her work and the process behind it. And then it, like, started going into, like, her rose garden and, like, oh, look at the layout of her dining room. And then let's talk about the architecture of the house. No. 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 What? Yeah, you know, it was just... Yeah, I mean, just it was aimed at praising her for balancing motherhood, her career, and then domestic affairs. Because, again, at this point, like, a woman's place is in the home. I know. I know your face is so gross right now.
1: I hate everything. So, you know,
0: by 1910, Adelaide, she's she's making her own ceramic forms, like, to china paint and glaze. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she was making her own pottery, that was a really significant departure from using commercially produced items. because yeah, she was bored. Well, no, I think creatively she just wanted to be involved in all aspects of it. And I mean, there was a bit of a gendered kind of expectation that women were just supposed to paint these objects and that it would be the men who would be, you know, the potters who would be making this pottery.
1: But like her later work, like I saw her later work, that shit is not mass produced. Like she wouldn't have been able to do the stuff that she did, like if she was just buying shit off. On commercial objects.
0: Yeah. 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 No, she was interested. She wanted to make her own forms. She wanted to be involved in every step of the process. And she was actually one of the first to develop a American like high fire porcelain clay body. And that means absolutely nothing to you. No. It's okay. But basically, high fire porcelain in like the realm of clays, like that's usually what's considered like the king of clay. Well, I mean, all you need to know is that she was able to formulate this super fancy type of clay and that to go along with it, she needed super fancy glazes to match it, you know, to be at like the same firing temperature range.
1: Did she also make super fancy glazes?
0: She did. She did that too. So she went from initially just China painting, you know, a lot of commercial products involved to actually going into the formulate formulation and chemistry of developing clay and then glazes too.
1: Gotcha. Did she sell it, too? Do
0: you use her products? She was just investigating and developing these things as a studio artist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, she was all like, right. I have this creative solution in mind. How can I solve it? How can I achieve that? That's where she was coming at. Got it. Got it.
1: Got it. Got yeah. It, got it was
0: It was not from a manufacturing commercial inclination, like, at all.
1: Not marketing. Got
0: it. Um, so, within her studio, she was doing a lot of experimentation. And because of that, her overall output was on the low side. So, in total, there's only about 600 pieces attributed to her. And they're, like, mostly vases and jars. Very elegant forms. Only 600 pieces? Okay, well, your average studio production potter can crank that out easily in, like, half a year, if not three months.
1: I still think that's a lot, and I'm proud of her.
0: I know. I know. It is. And so one with all her experimentation, there's going to be failure. That happens. You know, that's the ceramic life. But one part of it was that if she didn't like the work that came out of the kiln, she would smash it. (laughs) Sounds
1: like somebody I know.
0: I know. I know. I was like, I like her even more. So the one quote I was actually able to find that she said was, Quote, the very dangers and uncertainties of the work are fascinating to the true artist Potter. Okay. Yeah. You know, so all the stuff that can happen in the kiln, things can go wrong, but like that's okay. That's part of the process. You just got to roll with it.
1: Yeah. You just learn from that.
0: Yeah. And so like a lot of her work, like what we see today, like it's, it's very nice because she only kept the best pieces. And so her most well-known
1: work. Destroy all the evidence. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, just like it destroyed your head the other
1: week. Yeah. That's why I shred everything. Including your medical documents. Yeah. No (laughs) one will ever know.
0: So Adelaide's best known work, the piece that in 2000 was deemed the most important ceramic object of the last 100 years, that was by Art Antiques magazine, was her scarab vase.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of that when I scrolled.
0: Oh, yeah. So
1: an art director
0: at Everson Museum That's a museum that, like, during her lifetime bought a lot of Adelaide's pottery. Mm -hmm. Described it as, quote, Mona Lisa of ceramics.
1: I mean, it looks like there's a lot of work. Like, she, that, those, like, the texture on most of the vase does not look painted on. Like, all of the
0: vase? So, it is a 16-inch tall vase influenced with, you know, Chinese style. And Adelaide, she sculpted in relief scarabs kind of big accents, and then filled in the rest of the space with this repeating stylized pattern of scarabs pushing eggs. Yep. You know, like like the dung ball. Yeah. Yeah. Carved in relief so all the detail work maybe kind of goes in about a quarter of an inch.
1: Over and over.
0: The whole thing is covered with detail and it took her over a thousand hours to do it.
1: Over a thousand
0: hours. Has anyone counted the little beetles? You know what? I love you so much. When I looked at that piece... That was not a question I had. (laughs) I mean, how many beetles did she... (laughs) I like to think right now, there's like some 11-year-old who was like, oh my God, I was at the museum. Okay. Okay. This is what I counted.
1: (laughs) That's me. Because
0: I could just imagine like a little kid going around and be like, one, two, three. (laughs) And their friend comes over and they're like, what are you doing? they're like, 74, 75. I'm counting. I No. What number was I on?
1: (laughs) That's me. That's me at our museums.
0: (laughs) Uh, I do not know how many stylized scarabs there are on her vase. There's a lot because pretty much every surface has been carved and detailed.
1: Oh, it's on everything. Yeah.
0: And like you kind of asked about... Earlier about like art deco, like that fed into kind of the style. It's a very naturalistic approach. It also touches on the American arts and crafts movement that was really popular during the period. Mm-hmm. That piece is her masterpiece. And the reason why she chose a scarab as her narrative choice was to really like drive home the concept that like the most base materials, like fur scarab, dung, and then fur potter, clay, can be transformed into these mm-hmm. priceless objects. It is intense, and in Adelaide's case, intense. We can put a price to it. The vase is easily worth a million dollars if it ever went up for auction. Like to start holy with, holy shit! Yeah. Oh my god! So Like that's what? And a, a few years ago, it was stolen from the museum that it was held at. It was stolen. Yeah, it was stolen, and it was offered to a um, I don't know, an art historian, someone who works at the Smithsonian, and. They were like, "Yo, I I know where that's supposed to be. I'm gonna call the FBI real quick." Oh, I'm so glad they found it. Yeah, they were able to get it back to the the museum.
1: Oh my god!
0: But at that point, when it was stolen, they were offering to sell it for a hundred, like thousand dollars. But like I said, it if it ever went on the market today, it would easily fetch over a million dollars. Intense. Yeah. So a year after making it, uh, the piece won Adelaide Grand Prize at the 1911 Turin International Exposition, which is a city up in northern Italy. And overall, the quality of the work that Adelaide was making really asserted that ceramics wasn't like a lesser art, you know, compared to traditional things like painting and sculpture. And she really helped shift that narrative within the United States. Mm. So, for that reason, she's considered, like, one of the first great art potters here in the States. And she was recognized for that in her time. So, like, even when she was alive, there were museums collecting her work. She had a lot of avid private collectors. And after her death in 1929, when she was 64, she was the first art potter to have a retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's insane. That And that's a huge deal. Because, like, for the most part, people just had this kind of, like dismissive attitude towards you know china painting and ceramics at the time right. and women in because they're like oh that's just like women's work like you're just an amateur if you do that
1: well when you look at your her shit and go oh that's that's, that's a whole ass boat carved into a vase yeah yeah like when someone takes <laughs> it serious and they actually
0: pursue it and, i mean thankfully adelaide she had the resources and support that she could
1: uh-huh.
0: yeah and like one thing that's probably weird is that I was thinking about it, and there was, um, those two col- or colleges that she taught at, I don't know if she had professor status. At this point, it's the early 1900s. Okay. But I was like, I bet she was only able to work there because ceramics was considered so secondary that they're like, yeah, sure, you're going to have a woman in here lecturing. Like, we don't care.
1: Because
0: it wasn't a threat, as opposed to, like, some of the scientists that you've covered where even up into the 40s and 50s, you're like, you can't fucking teach at Harvard. Fuck off
1: yeah, yeah, no, like it's it's crazy. like the kind of like, yeah, this is this is good enough for women, but like this is just it's too this other thing is too much for their brains. like what? like what causes that? I
0: just? I know, I know it's some crazy sexism. but I mean, she helped kind of shift that narrative a bit, which is pretty awesome. And like the China paints that got Adelaide Robineau, started in ceramics, I mean, they've come really full circle in modern feminist art. Mm-hmm. So, artist Judy Chicago, she's living. Um, she used China Paints in her most well-known work, the 1979 installation of The Dinner Party. Fancy. I think you know it. You probably know it. It's uh, currently, it's a permanent installation at the Brooklyn Museum. It's a big, giant triangle table. There's 39 place settings, and at each setting represents a historical or allegorical feminist woman from history.
1: Yeah. I just Googled this. I've never seen this before in my life, but this is intense.
0: What? Are you serious?
1: I'm dead serious.
0: Yeah, the dinner party is, like, one of the most, like, well-known American examples of feminist art. Like, first-wave feminist art.
1: Okay, that's why you're the art expert here, and I'm not. <laughs> right? All right, I forget these things. It's just... Judy Chicago is a big name. <laughs> like, I know I'm not, like, completely, like... I know I have some art in my head, but I'm not. My art stuff right. like, fucking, I don't even know. I don't even know.
0: Well, it's really big in the feminist art movement. And I mention it because on those place sittings, she had plates that were all china painted. I see that. So they're kind of abstract and often feature kind of yonic imagery. That's, that's. It's a big departure from how China paints were used, like, 80 years prior to that. Yeah. You know, and traditionally they're doing cute flowers and some nice little gold line work. Not anymore. And here we are, I'm going to do Georgia O'Keefe's vagina flower. I saw that. It's great. Georgia O'Keefe is in there. Uh,
1: Hypatia, which you covered a few episodes ago. Yeah, she's there too. (laughs) She's in there. Very cool. She is. You know, somebody who didn't know what they were looking at, they'd probably be like,
0: (gasps) Illuminati. (laughs) <laughs> Feminist vagina Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. No. So, yeah. So, I just thought it was kind of cool because, like, the sentiment behind the dinner party is the same behind this podcast. No. And I thought, yeah. No. And I think it's cool. So, as of today, we've covered more artists than are featured at the dinner party. <gasps> yeah. They have 39. Oh, We have 40.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's so cool.
0: Judy Chicago, don't come after me. Your work
1: is cool. (laughs) I'm sure she'd appreciate it. For sure.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, she's a listener of her podcast. Oh,
1: for sure. Yeah. She's, like, all over there in Colorado, like, getting high, listening up. Hey, guys in Colorado, we love you. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) So,
0: yeah. So that's Adelaide Romano. I just wanted to end on that. And, you know, just like the dinner party covers a lot of feminists, like, there's a lot more for us to cover for next season. I'm really excited for it so that's who i had today ceramic artists geeking out a little self-indulgent it makes me feel better and maybe if i'm lucky a few of you guys as well
1: it made me feel better and i don't even know much of art have you ever have you seen me try to play with clay Do you remember, no, we had one time where I made stuff out of, like, clay that you made the holiday ornaments out of. Okay, so that's the only time I can think of that we actually, like, sat
0: down and did something.
1: Yeah, I made a really ugly bear, polar bear, and a veiny dick.
0: She did. It was, yes. (laughs) You came through on girth for that. So I doubt Adelaide was making naughty clay Christmas ornaments with her bestie. But you never know. You never know. You never know. All right. So that's what I got on my end. A very megan episode, which, I mean, to be fair, every episode's a megan episode. I'm a little biased. <laughs> so is your episode today extra Milena-y? Are we expecting extra giggles
1: and farts, maybe, in the mix? Um, no, not giggles and farts okay all right Nor unicorns this is uh this is the part of milena that it's not fun like it just it's it, but it's definitely like i i had a personal again i i came for the drama but i stayed for how much i recognized my ambition in her okay cool or in them excuse me me let me explain so yeah, I was fascinated when I heard about this person and we're talking about James Barry. So not the artist, the doctor.
0: Okay. I, I'm gonna be a bad artist for a sec. I don't know who that is. I
1: on I'm some fucking seventeenth century white man from Ireland. I don't <laughs> Oh, I actually don't know who the fuck that yeah, is. Okay. Like... All right. Whoever in the art world knows who James Barry is. Like I didn't even bother looking up the painting because I, I literally didn't care. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even gonna lie to you. I I So yeah, not the artist, but the doctor. And although it is widely believed that the painter was Dr. James Barry's uncle. So if you're like, why the hell are you covering a man? Please bear with me. This story is super fascinating and I really wanted to share it. And also James Barry was biologically a woman. Also, on this podcast, that doesn't fucking matter because if you're a feminist, you're in. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, right? So, actually Barry was born Margaret Ann Buckley in Ireland. No one really knows the year, but I'm going to land on 1799 because I'm following mostly the book written by June Rose called The Perfect Gentleman: The Remarkable Life of James Barry. Little bit of a disclaimer, this book was written in 1977, and it's worth noting that it was written with a cisgendered heterosexual viewpoint in mind. So, June Rose was a writer, and wanted to lavish some shit up. So, there were definitely some speculations as to, like, a woman being forced to hide her secrets and being in love with a general and becoming jealous when he got married and blah blah blah. And I had that in mind the entire I know, it was yeah, it was really like Okay, potentially you could you could put aside the author's sexual point of view and argue that
0: it was more of a scandalous nature in order to. Yeah. Sell no,
1: I no, for sure. It absolutely was. And I think honestly, if there was any kind of like jealousy involved, it was less about romance and more about just the fact that James Barry didn't have a lot of people in their life that she felt connected with. Okay. um, The novel did help me round some things out. So I I did read the whole thing yesterday and this morning. So what I can say is that there is very little evidence either way and whether this was a Mulan situation, somebody trying to get into the army and pursue a career in medicine, or if it was a transgender gay man just trying to live out his best life. Like there's no clue either way. So I'm just going to do my best in referring to James Berry using genderless pronouns because I'm not going to assume shit. Okay, but here we go. We don't really know who mom and dad were. There's a lot of speculation. The most likely story is that mom is artist James Berry's younger sister. We don't know who dad is, but Dr. James Berry had a lot of male role models in their life, father figures. Very powerful, powerful, loving and progressive father figures so the first one we had okay yeah right like people like looking after them so the first one we had was lord buchan who would go on to take care of barry and their mother and would also go on to write about how not allowing women to achieve an education was akin to chinese foot binding
0: kudos for him pointing that that out in the 1700s maybe we still have to point that out today (laughs) but okay good good
1: (laughs) And then the next individual was Lord Buchan's friend and also Uncle James Barry's the artist friend, Francisco de Miranda, who just so happened to be a very powerful Venezuelan general with a library of books that he allowed James Barry to go and read through. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the kicker. They're all in Spanish. <laughs> you know, w- wait for it. I, w- I will say that. Like this is the same Venezuelan, Venezuelan general who tried to create a uh, like independence from England later on. So he he was that person. <laughs> I wish that I could say they're doing really well today. Yeah. No, he no he failed at it. and He ended up in jail. But that, he was definitely one of the first ones that were like, pit pe- wait, independencia," yeah. you know, something like that. So most of the books that they read were medical books as a child. And fun fact, those were actually the books. Like I read a lot of fiction books growing up, but like I was also really into medical books like really early on.
0: Maybe there was some influence with your father who's like a health physicist. So that's in the medical body realm. I would
1: like I would take my dad's old ass anatomy book and disease book. It was like an anatomy and disease situation. Uh, out of his bookcase and just read and like just like sounding out the words and reading the symptoms and like was super excited i don't know it was very weird um i'm unsure if he actually noticed that that book would go missing every once in a while <laughs> anyway james barry did not keep this fascination to themself and this was huge because their dad figures were like yo she doesn't need a husband she needs to use her brain right and we have no idea mm-hmm. How this next thing came to be, but that's about when Margaret Ann Bulkley put some pants on and became James Miranda Stewart Berry, named after their artist uncle.
0: There's been a handful of cases in history, especially around this period, where if someone was a woman and they had any aspirations to do things that's not a way for a
1: mother. They had to do it.
0: That, that was one way to do it was, you know, to presume to be a man because that allowed you access to a world that was otherwise completely cut
1: off from you or just flat out For denied to sure. you. oddly enough, like, their father figures and even their mother, they were so on board. Like, basically, by 1810, James enrolled in Edinburgh University at the age of 10. That's so wild. I know.
0: But, like, I know even... Leading into the, the 1800s, I mean,
1: that was one of the premier medical schools. For a medical degree, this, like, they were not playing. And yeah. they were chaperoned by their mom for most of the duration there. So she was in on it. She was like, okay, this is my son. That's so cool. That's so solid. Like, I don't know. if She was just like, okay, she needs an education or okay, my daughter's a, a son now. Like, I don't really know the situation. But the fact that the mom was like, yes, we're doing this thing. That is crazy. That's, That's huge. huge. Yeah. So James Berry kept mostly to himself, read for fun, didn't do anything crazy, studied their butt off, had made only one friend named Jobson. Jobson, how English is that? <laughs> <laughs> or, Scottish. or Scottish, rather. So at age 13, James Berry becomes a medical doctor after writing and defending a thesis on hernias of the groin. In Latin.
0: Oh, my God. The 1700s were a fucking wild time. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Can you imagine, like, coming out with an illness and being like, you got to go to the doctor and be like, oh, fucking hell. All right. What was the name of the place you recommended? <laughs> you're in the waiting room. You're in the examination room. You're kind of waiting a bit. I'm an in this kid who hasn't even hit puberty. <laughs> so You're the doctor?
1: that's fucking great i I read that and i was like yes yes this is
0: amazing what was i doing when i was i i think you and i we were probably both writing really terrible middle school poems yes just terrible poetry terrible terrible middle school poetry
1: and i was i was getting in trouble for not believing in god a lot and fucking with a lot of private school boys just fucking with their day like not actually doing anything like whatever but like I was really making them uncomfortable because I thought it was fun at the time yeah well puberty hit you hard my parents didn't know what to do with me i
0: don't know what to do with you sometimes
1: i i think <laughs> when it was oh man it was it was intense uh
0: anyway so going back to someone who's not writing awkward middle school poetry but instead a fucking doctor at 13 uh, yeah, a fucking dog.
1: <laughs> so, after graduation, um James Perry realized that their uncle Miranda was in jail for trying to start a Spanish revolution from the English colonies. <gasps> oh
0: my god. I just imagine being like, "Oh shit, that fucking sucks." Hey, who gets his library? <laughs> I just I mean, he's going to be a while, away for a while, right? Yeah, I not. Mean, I just hey.
1: It was bad. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, the plan was to go to Venezuela and be with him and, like, practice medicine down there and hang out with him. But that was no longer an option. Be like,
0: fucking but shit. I'm 13 years old. I'm a doctor. I was studying Spanish,
1: too. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was intense. so was crazy. So, okay. They- so James Barry had to keep, sorry, James had to keep their identity a secret. If they had stuck around the UK, they would be found out. Okay. So instead, 1813, James joined the British Army with Jobson. Okay, him and his best BFF. But that's about the last time we hear about Jobson because they got assigned to different places.
0: I mean, at this point, the British Empire is not quite at its peak. It's still about 100 years away from that, but it still owns pretty much everything. It's vast. Yeah. Yeah. So I could very easily see it. Be like, okay, cool. We're going to station you down in the Caribbean. And then let's say, mm, how about South Pacific? Yeah, let's send you there. That works. Yeah. 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 You could literally be halfway across the world from your best friend. Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. We, have, we literally never hear about this person ever again. It's really frustrating. Okay. So 1816, the first assignment, Cape Town in South Africa. Okay. There, James Barry immediately won the favor of a Governor-Lord Charles Somerset. (laughs) Jesus. Oh, to be part of the British Empire. I know. So Barry had saved the governor's daughter, like, her life. And I have no idea what she was sick of, but from then on, he would keep Barry around as the family physician and a close family friend. He would tell everyone to go to Dr. Barry for all of their ailments. Like, he would make sure that Barry went to all of their parties. And when James Barry was not being wined and dined by Somerset, James threw themselves into their work. They worked for the civilians, the soldiers, the lords, the slaves, the prisoners, the homeless. This was huge. There was no discrimination. And that was crazy in this time, right? Okay. This would be a running theme in their career. Sanitization, a good diet, public health concerns, good medical practices to prevent from secondary infections and sepsis in the hospital settings. All things that seemed like common sense today were not practiced in Cape Town, Africa. They were not widely accepted. Okay, even into like the 1850s. I know. Like the idea of doctors
0: washing their hands, like, that... It's insane. ...was just not a practice, even so back in weird. the UK. So weird. Like, internationally, yeah. that was not a common standard.
1: So, of course, Barry's like, yo, wash your fucking hands. And they're all like, what? That's stupid. Like, they were... It was a lot. <clears throat> but they weren't about cutting corners or being anything less than a professional advocate for their patients. So, this is this is in contrast to the fact that... Barry was 16 and had the stature and features of a 16-year-old girl. Like they weren't taking hormones. So mm-hmm. Barry had to make some noise, lots of it, involving chatting up women at part, like at balls, getting into duels over women, throwing wine in people's faces for just for suggesting that they were anything less than a man or cutting off a few fingers in rage like of other people's fingers because yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. They burned a lot of bridges. What? A lot. <laughs> I, uh, a, lot yeah, a lot. But
0: you're also you're so far away from home and if anyone were to discover your secret, you're screwed. You're screwed. You're screwed. Like the yeah. risk is so high. I know. So I can understand a combative personality to try to put people off, any potential scent that you're anything less than what you present as because there is so much
1: legitimate risk to being discovered there was a huge wall the entire time never let it down and i that's totally understandable like and the more i read about what happened with them like the more i like recognize and understand with my work how passionate i am and how hard i will work and how like even when i was in like veterinary medicine like how much i put myself Mm -hmm. into my job and then being told like I will always be in medicine, so I imagine this is going to be the same way when I jump into human medicine. Oh. Because it's it's my home, it's what I understand, it's what I love. But I also know that there's going to be a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of people in everyone's way. Like, I, I see it. I see it. I saw the yeah. the entire time I was reading the book, because that's literally just a running theme. So, i I'll get into it. But that temper would temper the relationship that they had with Somerset. He would stick his neck out for his dear friend Barry, and Barry would use that clout to dig himself into a deeper hole. It was exhausting. So, as well, one of Somerset's daughters had fallen ill back in England, so Somerset got goes home. Tends to the daughters, finds a wife, comes back with a wife, but while he's gone, some tra- changes were made in his absence. He decides to live in Newlands with his new pregnant wife, five miles from Cape Town to distance himself from the colony and also from Barry, because James had no chill. Okay. Yeah. So the book had alluded to the, the idea that James was actually in love with Somerset and they couldn't bear to see the man that they loved married, whatever. But I think the big commotion was more the fact that James Barry was promoted to a very, very big position at a very young age. Suddenly they had a lot of power.
0: And you're 16. Like, that is a terrible idea. Well, this was 23.
1: <laughs> but I mean, even to initially be there, like, that is a lot. Mm-hmm. It's super impressionable. So... Age 23, James is demoted to assistant staff surgeon part-time for the Army because they were promoted to full-time civilian colonel medical inspector. Okay. And part of their job was to inspect drugs that came into the colony, inspect drugs being used in the colony, where they expired, where they stored properly in the right conditions, grant licenses to doctors, apothecaries, midwives, tell all these people how to do their jobs— supervise all of the medicine in that area and james didn't fall nicely into that role they were young right there was a lot of bureaucracy and the people in the area didn't respect them these people would purposely make the job hard for james Mm -hmm. and this was partially due to the fact that james berry didn't care who they insulted and mostly due to the fact that james berry was making a lot of changes in the community There was a lot of setting up of what I like to call gold standards of medicine. Apothecaries were not allowed to prescribe drugs like arsenic and opium as medicine because they were not physicians. They certainly were not surgeons. And the district surgeons absolutely, according to James Berry, could not refuse night calls and servicing anyone from police to homeless people on the street because they worked for the colony and they would act like it under James' rule. Okay. There was the systematic plan for smallpox vaccinations in the area before people even did it in England. That was James'. Barry was also going to fix the prison hospital and the civilian hospital and even the psychiatric ward of the hospital. Oh, and the whitewashing of the white colonials beating their slaves to death, right? Coroners would say things like, quote, he drank himself to death. Nope. James Barry would have none of it. So the medical records would state exactly what happened. We weren't going to sugarcoat it. And although there wasn't much one could do about slavery or the abuse of slaves at that time, Barry was going to make sure that the public knew what had happened to these individuals. Okay. The biggest project at the time was the improvement of the conditions of the leper island called Heaven and Earth. Oh, Jesus. I know. It was an absolute nightmare. The diet was awful. They were confined to a small island. They slept in dirt. Their lesions were, like, it just wasn't pleasant. Like, it was not a good place to be. Just an inhumane setting. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot that could have been fixed by just treating these individuals with respect and making sure that their conditions weren't that of a rat in a sewer, basically. Um, so James took it upon themselves to take control over the medicine and health of these individuals and would go as far as to tell the priest how to do his job because up until then, the priest was the one running the show. Basically, like, hi, priest, you're reporting to me monthly now and you're going to tell me what you're doing for these people. Okay. These reforms, they were right. Like, this is real. They were way ahead of their time, but they would piss people off constantly. The reforms were pretty costly monetarily, but they were based mm-hmm. on medical and professional integrity, which... James would not waver. Preventive medicine, cleanliness, treating patients with respect no matter their status in life, James would take charge and was not afraid to get into fights with people when it came to doing the right thing in medicine, even if that wasn't the way it had been done before. Barry was opinionated, stubborn, refused to be diplomatic, burned a shit ton of bridges. Hmm. As a result... Barry made a lot of powerful enemies. There was at one point a sign posted next to their home that said something along the lines of, quote, Dr. Barry and his wife, referring to Somerset and their weird codependent relationship. Granted, no one actually knows what that four-letter word was. Like, it was Barry was a, and then, like, dot, 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 dot. Like, nobody, and none of the records actually say wife, but that's what people think it says. Like, that's what people mostly fill that blank with. And that sign, because it was the 1800s, was brought to court for libel because freedom of speech is apparently not a thing. (laughs) not towards the British upper class nope Nope, absolutely not so I mean and honestly it was such a toxic environment for James that they had like a public breakdown about how people would break them with all these snide remarks about their relationship with Somerset and how they acted and all that stuff and like i mean they called barry spoiled it was just a whole fucking mess it was a toxic work environment and if i'm being very honest it was also probably because people saw barry and always had the idea that barry wasn't actually a man i mean even
0: with my italian heritage there is only so much facial hair i can muster (laughs) <laughs> yeah like a prepubescent like 12 year old yeah i can pull off that little stash but like a 20 something year old man uh-uh. if you just look at my eyebrows i'm fucking gold <laughs> yeah but like, like a a beard or anything like that's yeah.
1: at that point you just you physically can't do it you can't make those changes Barry was <laughs> tiny no facial hair would wear purposely shoes with heels on them. Would have an oversized sword. Would make sure to make a show of the fact that they were a man. I'm just trying. I'm just imagining myself in that role. I yeah would yeah. <laughs> be like just
0: ripping into like a local <laughs> doctor in terms of regulations. So now they have to update it. Updated, and then you, the camera zooms out, and there I am looking up because I'm like fucking only five three.
1: <laughs> be like right, well. Are we clear? Like... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, about, from what I understand, James Barry had a loud voice. It wasn't. It wasn't anything like what just came out of your mouth. It was very. It was demanding. Yeah. Um. It was commanding, but at the same time, yeah, it, Barry was small. <laughs> I feel you. I feel. You. And at most, at the very least, people thought that Barry was intersex. And at the most, a lot of people speculated that James Berry was a woman. And in honesty, in all honesty, people had walked in on James getting dressed. There was a story about two lower ranks finding their way into James' bedchamber and pulling down the bedsheets to see if the rumors were true. Yeah, people... Buttholes... For sure knew that James was a biological woman, but somehow they got them to not say anything. Like, James only allowed rumors. Even the people, and the people only allowed rumors, because... The people who knew about it didn't say anything until 20 years after James' death, right? Okay. And people didn't say anything about it because they knew that Barry was an amazing doctor. They were so good at their job, made real results, was so good to their patients, really cared about everyone in their care. Like, there, there's, like, a quote about, like, how right it felt to be under James Barry's medical care. And, like, they were like, look, he's he's fucking nuts, right? He's... <laughs> super mean, but with his patients, he's got it under control. Like, he was a totally different person, which, again, I get. And, I mean, James even essentially performed miracles on the medical world at the time, which we'll get to soon. But add that kind of speculation to the fact that James didn't make it easy for people to like them. It was so easy to paint James very as a villain, even when people watched them go out of their way to take care of homeless people on the street. So the thing that really did James in at Cape Town was... There was a whole lot of he said, he said scenario about one particular man in a prison hospital, Aaron Smith. So Aaron Smith got really drunk one night, broke into a diplomat's house. Why not? As you do. Okay. (laughs) As you do. The people who were taking charge of James wanted to send Aaron to a psychiatric space. They were like, he's insane. And I guess people knew how James would react when they saw the conditions Aaron was living in. And also, there was nothing wrong with Aaron. So... James didn't keep their mouth shut. They wrote in their notes that everything was filthy. Aaron needed a real diet, and also the man was sane. Discharge him from the prison hospital. Eighteen days later, James gets a call back again to once again examine Aaron Smith. James was like, what the fuck? I told you to discharge him. And they were like, nah, man, he's raving mad this time. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And then Barry writes in their second report that he was actually still sane, but was probably going to lose his mind due to the shitty diet environment that he was in. Fix it. He should have been let go 18 days ago. Yeah. And that's when people running the show at the prison wrote to authorities suing for ungentlemanlike conduct, because that's the thing you can sue for.
0: Can fucking.
1: 1800s were wild, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it just became a clusterfuck of, well, Barry did this, so-and-so did that. How dare they? Like, some goddamn teenage girls in a really intense high school drama on the CW. You wouldn't know, but it's real. It's real. Actually, I needed to get caught up on Riverside. Like, I think they ended the show, but... I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. I only watched up to season two. Anyway, long story short, even with Somerset's support from afar... Because he was still trying to just live his life and do his job, but still also love James as a family member. It is a super complicated mm-hmm. relationship. The point was, James was being dragged through the mud. So James resigned, with their only job now being that of an assistant surgeon in the British Army. And to top it off, their only friend in all this, no matter how sticky things got, had to resign himself, go back to England and deal with his own backlash of a failed colony, right? Mm. So James was alone, and it was at that point that people who were going through <sighs> this is the, this is the kicker. Once it got as hot, like really high up, they were like suing for a gentleman, like conduct and like what James was doing as a doctor, sort of situation. They were like, "No, nah, James was right. He probably should have had staff under him." Like he was right to be upset about the situation because these were things that happened. Basically, they were like this was this was a reasonable response to watching a man in a filthy environment being told that he was insane. Okay. And that he should still be he should still be a a doctor. He should still be in that that position. Was he reinstated? Nope. Okay. No. So it was like my only friend here is gone. My job is gone. To pour salt into wounds, they tell me that I should have kept my job. So, alone. James was alone. Actually, James okay. had a servant and a poodle named Psyche. Okay. <laughs> and actually, throughout their entire life, they always had a poodle named Psyche. It was just different poodles. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. I feel like, especially if I keep getting, like,
0: scruffy dogs I love, Um, mm-hmm. it's just going to be a scruffy butt. Scruffy butt the second, scruffy butt the third, the fourth, the fifth. You have a problem. You have a problem. All right, so James and their manservant and their poodle. They're all chilling well, together, depressed in South Africa. More like a slave, but
1: I'm pretty sure he knew that James was a biological woman. But yeah, but he was he was a good okay. friend. I, I don't know. I don't know, friend is the word.
0: I, let me okay, never mind that. You can't just be like, and their servant.
1: Oh by the way, they're actually their slave. Yeah, no, they were... That's a big difference. I mean, I'm pretty sure they definitely owned this person. But, like, I don't know. When you're in the 1800s and in the British Army, it just happens, I guess.
0: And in a, a racially yeah. tense
1: area, like South Africa, where the
0: white colonizers yeah. came in and were like, we fucking own everything, including you. Yeah. Right. No, I just, I think it's relevant to say that it, James' servant was their slave. Yeah, they were. they were all... Their
1: enslaved servant. They were all. Yep. It was not fun. Good news is that James didn't care if you were a slave or a lord. They would still take care of you, but still, you're still a slave. So, problematic. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, there alone, James would continue to just work. They felt that the diminishment of their name with the libel situation and with the gentleman like conduct trial, that nobody would want them to practice medicine on them. So, James was wrong, because it was around that lonely time that they were called on by a tobacco merchant, Thomas Munich, And his wife was having some issues with her pregnancy. She was in labor, and she, it was not looking like she would survive it. Okay. So, James rushes quickly, makes the very swift decision of performing a cesarean in the home of the Munichs, Both... Mom and child survived, and this is the first C-section performed with the success of both mother and child surviving ever. So to this day, the firstborn son of every Munich family is named James Barry Munich, or after them.
0: What? Oh, yeah. Oh, so awesome. That is <laughs> such... That is so sweet. I mean, that's such a big deal just to have the first successful, like, C-section. Yeah. But then to have the family really honor you and acknowledge that, like, no, we own our existence in part to that child who was born... Exactly, yeah. That's so sweet.
1: That's so cool. They wanted a portrait of James to be put on their mantle because they really, they really love James. But mm. James was like, I am biologically a woman and I really don't need my feminine features being painted. So it mm. was actually, they had one created without James's permission. And you can tell because the portrait is creepy. <laughs> the eyes are different sizes and looking different ways. Please Google. I'm trying I'm trying my James Berry portrait. The most fucked up portrait you see, that's the portrait. I think I found it. Isn't it so creepy?
0: Hey, it's not looting. I just oh god, it's about to get bigger. <laughs> um so they had green eyes. <laughs> Have you seen, this is in the vein of art gone horribly wrong, the eyes are off.
1: It's so bad. This is no. not the finest work
0: I've seen. I thought you might get a kick out of that. Jesus. Who the fuck did that portrait? I feel personally like pissed off. Like As a figurative artist yeah it's bad (laughs) like who can i shit talk because this is unacceptable
1: also if you if you just if you just google james barry you'll get like an actual picture of them next to their dog and their slave and if you look like it's so found the picture i don't know like kind of a feminist like a feminine frame but also kind of not like it's an androgynous presentation but like I can see there's, like, no facial hair and, like, smaller stature, but I don't know. I don't see a woman in that picture, which I guess is the point, but. Yeah. Anyway, the time at Cape Town came to an end, and James was relocated and relocated and relocated and relocated. Mm. And anywhere James went, enemies were made. He did not understand red tape or tact. And I am hands down the same person, minus the whole presenting myself as a man thing. It's
0: gotta be a certain point where they just must have like realized,
1: be like, is it me? (laughs) Why people don't like me? It's probably me. But at the same time, again, you're like you're trying to pass yourself as a man, and you just don't want you want to keep people at arm's length. You don't want to get too close to people, and you don't want to be liked because that when you're liked, people want to get close to you, and it's just.
0: I was thinking about it in a totally different way. No, sometimes when you're legitimately trying to do your job and you're not trying to cut corners, like you said, yeah. like you're going to piss yeah. people off.
1: That's, I mean, I've done that.
0: This is also <laughs> a time when you're like, no, you got to wash your hands. Someone's like, what do you mean? I'm just going to put leeches on them to exercise them of the demon blood spirits.
1: Yeah, it's. And you're like, oh my God, what
0: century am I living in? This is some bullshit.
1: <laughs> oh no! Oh my goodness! All right. So seriously though, 1918. Sorry, 1828. Maritius. I don't know how to say it. A small island in the Indian Ocean. Felt like a small town to James. So much gossip. The minute changes were being made by James, there were enemies involved. They were. Yeah. James was so bored of the tiny town life that Somerset got sick in England and called for James to attend him, and James just peaced out. When am I for a little bit, like a year? Came back and was just relocated. Look, I know I'm in the British Army, but my friend's sick and needs me. That was also around yeah. the time that Somerset actually did did pass away.
0: Also, like to go from like the Indian Ocean all the way back to England. I mean, mm-hmm. th- I mean, is that like a week of travel? Two weeks? That's I could see that easily being
1: weeks. That's how you know it's a real connection. Like, I I imagine it was just the closest person in their life that, I I don't know, I I don't think it was romantic, but I do think that it, it was somebody that they cared for and they trusted. So 1831, we get sent to Jamaica. Worst health record in the empire. James was focused on the diet of the soldiers and the fact that most of the soldiers there were alcoholics major alcoholic independency would suffer alcohol withdrawal so bad that they would shoot up die if they didn't get their rum that day. Oh, Jesus. Yep. This time was a little bit different because the reason James left was because they contracted yellow fever, not malaria, Ooh. as we've touched on before. Yeah. Had to go to England to recover again. This was in 1845, and after the recovery in 1846... James found their way to Malta, and cholera was a big ol' thing there. There had been an outbreak 10 years before, so the word, the mention of cholera was too much of a deal. So what is cholera? Because I'm me. Caused by bacteria called cholera bacillus, so symptoms are diarrhea, dehydration, and eventually death. James thought, just like any other Victorian doctors, that cholera was contracted by breathing in excrement and polluted matter, so evil air, if you will, so they pushed for Sewer systems to be revamped, covered, not just left open in the streets. And that was a big deal. And it helped, like, put down the – because there was an epidemic when they were there. So they were like, we – like, there are sewers open everywhere. Like, what are we doing here?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, that's
1: going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> this time, though, James practiced tact in explaining the situation and was able to work with the government to work on the public health standards of the island. So big win there. Cool. Cool. And, uh, what, at this point, how old is James? see 1846 I'm gonna go with 47 years old okay all right a little wisdom with age yeah you know later on I mean they were they were always a vegetarian but later on they would just stop drinking because they're like I don't need that in my life just you, you could you can see the change so 1851 relocated to Corfu I did not check where Corfu was I was about to say I don't know where that is let me check
0: yeah, like, I know, like, Malta is in, like, kind of the far east region of the Mediterranean.
1: Corfu is an island in Greece.
0: Okay, so, yeah, not too far from Malta, then.
1: Okay, yeah. So, found the way to Corfu. Gained first promotion in 24 years to Deputy Inspector General. October 5th, 1853, the Crimean War broke out. Yeah, you know, it's just a war with the English and the Turks. James wanted in, but while they waited to head over to Crimea, they did some work with Krofu's hospitals. By the time James was there for a month, they had 53 men ready for duty again. 63 were good for slight duty, like paperwork. 69 were stabilized patients in bed, 260 outpatients. Only 17 died under James' care in that first month. This was extraordinary. Before James showed up, 23 soldiers a day were dying. Holy moly. Yep. Whoa, wow, okay. Yeah, huge difference just by sanitization and public health and... Gee, I wonder if we could use those same policies in the United States right now. Preventive medicine. Banging my head through a wall. <laughs> yeah, welcome to my absolute hell. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, gee, if only
0: we could apply some of those common sense measures to our current national situation with a fucking pandemic. You know. If only. Uh.
1: Anyway, James finally forced themselves into serving in the war because they had a friend named Lord Raglan, and he brought James along. Of course, James went about their usual antics, sweet to the patients, told all the soldiers that they were filthy animals. You know, James's changes in the way things were done cost money, and their efforts and standards pissed people off. Yeah. On par. This included, however, Florence Nightingale.
0: Wait, I'm sorry. Did James piss off Florence Nightingale?
1: Yeah. Okay. All right. How did James piss her off? Uh, James basically berated her in front of a bunch of soldiers in public over the conditions of the hospital that she was also trying to make better. Okay. Not fun. Not good, James. Don't do that. But I'm pretty sure that was a last straw because James' next assignment was in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they tried to do their best there. The conditions were less dirty and death-ridden. James got the soldiers to eat better, pushed for a rec wanted a better life for them, never stopped working for the betterment of conditions of the people around them, like, no matter what made them look like. Like, they didn't care as long as things were getting better. But Canada didn't suit James. They got the flu that turned into bronchitis, and they had to go back to London to rest up. Yep. What part of uh, Canada were they in? Montreal.
0: That uh, checks out. Spent a... most
1: of their life in the tropics and then went to Canada. Like... Have <laughs> <laughs> fun! Enjoy the north. Yeah. And this was May of 1859. James was forced to retire because of it and got half pay because James didn't finish out their time in Canada. It wasn't their fault that they didn't finish it, again, because of the bronchitis. And they even asked to go back, like, begged, like, wrote to beg to go back and finish the job. James had 20 more months left before retirement. Hmm. Between then and 1865, James just putted around, didn't know what to do, did odd doctor jobs, didn't really take care of their own health. was just depression and just was beaten down by all of it. So when James was treating people for dysentery, they didn't really take as many precautions as they used to. James got dysentery and passed away on July 25th. Of 1865? 1865. James left everything to their dog.
0: I'm... my face right now. (laughs) Except 100 pounds,
1: that went to the servant. The slave.
0: Okay, so what did... Poodle the Seventh do with all of James's worldly items.
1: (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) But I just want you to know that that's where it went. (laughs) All right. I think
0: we have another burning historical mystery that needs to be solved with a time traveling machine. I want to go back to the lawyer's office as they're like showing papers and like, okay, I'm about to read the last will and testament of James Berry, Dr. James (laughs) Barry." You just bear it with me, all right? And then, like, camera pans from, like, the lawyer's face to the poodle sitting on the chair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, when he had to sign the documents? Like, Is like, I, I it just, just I like, have... a
0: poodle paw print?
1: I, <laughs> I have so many questions. <laughs> I don't know. I just figured the servant would have continued to take care of the poodle, and as long as the poodle was taken care of, The servant was taken care of. I guess. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of questions. Um, There's okay.
0: All right. So the same year that your doctor went out of this world, my ceramic artist was coming in. Oh there you go. (laughs) I was right.
1: (laughs) Going out, coming in. Yep. So, upon James's death, as far as what to do with the body, the explicit instructions were this. There was to be no examination of the body. Clothes will stay on. Roll the body up and bury it. Yeah, but, like, what actually happened? Yes, who didn't roll up the body and bury it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... The woman who laid out James's body was the same woman who wasn't, like, paid for work. There was some sort of monetary disagreement, and nobody else really wanted to see the body. But I I guess just because they mostly all knew James, and they didn't want to see, you know, on a slap. But then when the disagreement came about, she was like, yo, James was a woman. And the person that she was talking to, Dr. McKinnon, one of James's colleagues that had known James for years, was like, I had an inkling that james was intersex and she was like no that's a perfect woman on that slab she has stretch marks from being pregnant she's given birth before i would know what i have nine kids and i have those marks and if we don't come to an agreement i'm taking this story to the press holy shit all (laughs) right i mean get that money honey you probably need it so we okay probably do need it i honestly don't know Again, the author that I was reading had a lot of, like, had a speculation. Remember the time where Lord Somerset went to England to take care of his daughter and found a wife? Yeah. James had spent time in Malta just to hang out there, I guess. And the author believes that's when, because there's no, there's no like, chunk of evidence in what, what they were doing in Malta. The author believes that that's when they gave birth. Okay. But like also there's another like there's another theory that they were taken advantage of as a young person. Okay. Of like sexual assault yeah. and the pregnancy was a was a result from that. And I don't I don't know what it is, but it is it is true that somewhere out there somebody is related biologically to James Berry, <laughs> to Dr. James Berry. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's crazy. Like, no. And, like, I would like, I have stretch marks, but that's because I'm fat. She was not fat. (laughs) Like, she, the only reason she would have had those stretch marks is if she gave birth. So that was, like, a crazy, like, yeah, that's a woman. Like, she's working ovaries. (laughs) And the quote from Dr. McKinnon was, quote, I'm just going to read it. The woman seems to think that she had become acquainted with a great secret and wished to be paid for keeping it. I informed her... That all of doctor Barry's relatives were dead, and that it was no secret of mine, and that my own impression was that doctor Barry was a hermaphrodite. But whether doctor Barry was a male, female, or hermaphrodite, I do not know, nor had I any purpose in making the discovery, as I could positively swear to the identity of the body as being that of a person whom I had been acquainted with as inspector general of hospitals for a period of years. Quote. So aka I don't care what was in James's pants, he was a hell of a doctor.
0: No, it's pretty solid. Now, yeah. you said that some people waited or didn't start speaking out until 20 years after James's death.
1: Yeah. Was there any- It was just like it would come out of like the woodwork and like people were like scandal. Like they would they would just like focus on the fact that there was a vagina in that in those pants. Like, you know what I mean? Like that was a huge thing. Like it did come out because she did put that evidence out the people who personally knew james was like they weren't like loving the idea and they weren't coming out of the woodwork until later on okay and i think that was just because of the respect that they had for james Mm -hmm. and the kind of work that james did yeah yeah he could step on your toes but dude was solid yeah yeah if you're a good doctor saving
0: lives that's what matters
1: so that's that's
0: my story I mean, I thought my pottery was pretty cool with Adelaide Robineau, but I guess for, like, an end-of-season episode, like, it's all right. <laughs> I, think, I think we had a good time. I liked it. I liked it. Yeah. No, no, it was definitely fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had heard about Dr. James Barry before because of the C-section that they had performed, but it's really nice to now have a better understanding of just who they were and the impact that they
1: had overall right so yeah i didn't i didn't really know like i had heard the name james barry but i had never known one that you know the secret and i didn't know the impact again of what what they had on the care like the caribbean and public health like that's my fucking jam yeah like (laughs) (laughs) like if i had known i i don't know i just i'm really glad that i got to i got to know more about james Mm
0: -hmm. so as always if you guys have made it this far we super appreciate it Especially as we wrap up season two. It's been really amazing having you guys out there listening to us. We keep coming back. And sometimes there's more of you. And that's we really you. cool. Because, I mean, <laughs> honestly, we just kind of do this for ourselves. But the fact that other people like it, too, like, I think that's really neat. That's pretty solid. It yeah. It is. Keeps me going.
1: Thank you, guys. No, we, we really, You're really cool. appreciate it. <laughs>
0: And it'll be great. We really look forward to bringing you guys season three next year. So that'll be really exciting. And if there's any requests or anyone in particular you guys have in mind, feel free to send us an email.
1: Uh, And Milan, if
0: they want to do that or
1: learn more about the episode that we just covered,
0: where can they go?
1: We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have an email. It's info at myfavoritefeminist. Our Facebook and our Instagram is also under myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is at Megan, So that's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. If you love us, tweet us. Say hi. You can listen to us wherever you hear all of your major podcasts. Well, we're not really major, but all the major spaces to listen to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and please it takes two seconds to like rate subscribe and in any comment section or even just as a like an email say hey guys what's up let us know what kind of dog would you have over and over again like what breed uh a scruffy butt duh okay when she means by scruffy butt is a terrier mix it's okay super spoiled Is a very selective genetic result of years, years of selective mutt breeding. It's a wired-haired terrier thing that's super spoiled. No, no, he's adorable. My little scruffy
0: butt. He's, If I'm really feeling fancy, he is a a miniature
1: Irish wolfhound. That's not even close to the truth. Okay, no, he's a mutt. He's a terrier mutt. He's a terrier schnauzer mutt. He's he's a 20-pound mutt that can get away with anything. How long did it take you to take him out of your car after surgery? That's not important and he had had
0: major surgery. He was in <laughs> surgery for a whole 45 minutes.
1: All right. <laughs> 45 minutes. I'm okay.
0: <laughs> Try to get him out of the car. His blood pressure would go up. Blood was literally squirting out of this drainage tube they had in his leg. It was, oh it was a very long two hours. She's a <laughs> The dog was like, I'm tired of this shit. Someone let me out of this car. And we were like, oh, thank God. He was carried out of the car. Don't oh judge goodness. me and my little scrappy butt. He's adorable and I love him. And I would have his scrappy <laughs> butt over and over and over again. So
1: what about I you? I love you. Any, any pity breed. Just big fucking pity heads all day, every day. They can be so blocky. I
0: love the ones that are really blocky, like their heads. And they have like these short, stubby little legs and little bodies. i <laughs>
1: They're the fucking best. I introduced pocket pitties to my mom,
0: like, a couple weeks ago. Okay. Are those just, like, smaller breeds of
1: pits? Like, uh, they may they may reach 25 pounds. Okay. Maybe 30. They're so low to the ground. I mean, they're not genetically okay. Like, they're going to have issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if they, like, move wrong?
0: Their head goes down and their butt comes up because their distribution of weight.
1: <laughs> they're so just Google pocket pities, and if you really want one, you can adopt. Plenty of shelters have them. Please do not put money into this breed. It's not safe. It's not healthy. Just go to a fucking shelter. Pitbulls are everywhere, and they're so sweet and loving. And I would have so many of them,
0: and exactly one great thing. Yeah, no, just a small army of scruffy butts. <sighs>
1: And you know what your army would like overpower my guys' army because my guys just want to cuddle and your guys are like domination No, (laughs) they're like little Napoleons. (laughs) Carviva loves cuddles (laughs) Only when he wants to, on his on his terms. Yeah, it's very much And then you feed him all the food he wants because he gives you those big big eyes. No, I only had a hand
0: feed him kibble for a week before we swapped out his cone for the donut. He couldn't eat. He couldn't. He couldn't. All right, we're done here. On that note, we'll see you guys next (laughs) year. We'll see you for season three. Thank you so much for being with us. And Mila, don't (laughs) fucking judge me for hand feeding my dog kibble. I would would do the same. I love you so
1: much for being the best. You're the best dog mom. I love you. All right, guys. You see my face? I love you. Until next time, (laughs) we love you guys. Bye.
0: you hand him kibble because the cone was so big he couldn't get down
1: I told you you could cut the cone as long as you covered the thing like if you duct tape around the part the that cut, like no yeah. it was just because that's what they gave us and so <laughs> he's alright alright let me save this oh he's alive I promise <laughs>